This is Comer Shanigans, episode 542, a conversation with Tom Orzachowski. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 542. It's our conversation with Tom Orzikowski. Uh, i got to say, uh, if Tom is listening to this episode, we had a great conversation. It was uh, 90 minutes long. We really got into his career uh, as a letterer. It was really fantastic. And after it ended, uh, as I was recording the intro today, I realized never actually asked him the correct pronunciation of his last name. So there's probably a reason why he sometimes goes by the pseudonym of Orz, because... Uh, Orzakowski is kind of a difficult, can be a difficult word for some people, and apparently for me, I am one of them. But welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I am your Adam, I am your host, Adam Chapman. I am your Adam Chapman. And uh, today we have a co- great conversation with acclaimed letterer Tom Orzakowski, or if I'm just going to call him now, is Tom. Uh, he's an amazing letterer. He's done, I think, according to the Wikipedia page, which is not in any way a good barometer for uh, authenticity, but according to Wikipedia, he lettered something on the order of 6,000 pages of Chris Claremont's scripts over the course of his career, which is actually, like, that's an insane amount. Uh, he's also won notable awards, uh, I believe the Inkpot Award, a Wizard Fan Award, a Harvey Award. Um, he's worked on uh, Uncanny X-Men is probably most notable, and for the longest period, also worked on Spawn, many other things, which is what we get into in the episode as we speak with him. I just wanted to first thank a few people, uh, specifically people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum who submitted questions. Uh, particularly Mr. Articulate, um, otherwise known as apparently Paul, um, who I guess knew Tom from the Fancy Enough Said. I also want to thank uh, Jamo, uh, who else we got? DJ Way, Mr. Ousername, um, let's see, Comics Ate My Brain, who's Greg from Enough Said. So just want to thank you guys for submitting some great questions that really helped uh, add some depth to the interview. Without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. But first, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and enjoy the episode. Hello. Hi, Tom. It's Adam Chapman calling from Comic Shenanigans. How are you today? Adam, how are you doing? That's Adam, right? It is. Okay, good. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, we just got back from groceries about seven minutes ago, so this timed out to the moment. Wow, that's that's pretty uh, pretty finite timing. I don't think I could have planned that better. Yeah, it's kind of exciting. It's like getting to FedEx like two minutes before they slammed the door closed. <laughs> exactly. Which I did for years. Oh, really? During X-Men days in the 80s, I'd go to FedEx as often as six times a week. Oh, wow. And I had a timed, because I was taking transit, and I had a timed so that... Um, I'd catch this. This is San Francisco, so the transit ran constantly anyway. But I had a time, so I had like exactly three minutes wiggle room. <laughs> just still walk in the door, and I got to get out every last possible page because the book's running late. Of course, it's running late. It's the X Men. Did that happen a lot? Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a period. I don't know if you were reading it back that far. There was. Um, it was coming out bi-weekly during the summer months, so it was coming out 18 times a year for a while. Oh, yeah. And lots of villain artists, and Romita Jr. had the book, and Paul Smith at that time. But, you know, this suddenly there'd be a Barry Smith issue, or Rick Leonardi issue, um, who knows, Bill Willingham, lots of different people did fill-in issues. Wow. So, yeah, just run, run faster. <laughs> Well, and I guess you you were kind of like one of the last cogs to get it, or one of the near the end of I guess of the, that system, or like how did that kind of work from a production standpoint? Uh, it was pretty messy by then. Uh, they'd have the book. 
uh, you know, penciled Chris had scripted that it goes to the inker while he was scripting it. And I would get Xeroxes of some pencils, some inks. And while I was lettering it, it was being colored. And uh, difficult to say how they got it out every month. Well, and that brings up a question actually that a listener had that I actually have a, a series of questions that did come in from listeners when I mentioned that you were going to be on the show. But uh, asking the question of, you know, how was lettering really done? Was it done over pencils or inked pages or was it kind of a combination? Um, let's see. First, are, are we just warming up or actually doing the interview now? Uh, let's jump right in. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember when it became, because I know for John Byrne I was working on pencils, at least some of the time. But even back in those days, they were on issue 140. Um, before Cochram came back, it was, I was already lettering on vellum overlays on top of Terry Austin's inks. Mm. It's, gosh, looking back, it's hard to remember. Uh, on Savage Sword, I was lettering on Bissema's layouts and pencils. Uh, that was middle 70s. Um, Shooter came in around 76 partly because everything was in such catastrophic shape that it really had to crack the whip and organize the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became kind of notorious in people's minds as years went on, but in the, when he first got there, uh, they'd had... How old are you? I'm 34. Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm 64. Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, things started to fall apart. Um... Once you started getting the new pencilers in, like as long as you had like Sel Buscema, John Buscema, Gene Cullen, the old pros, things stayed on a very good schedule. They started working in the 50s, and they had families to support. The guys that were coming in in the 70s and 80s were young, and they didn't have families to support, and they were paying royalties, and so people were buying condos and motorcycles and helicopters and <laughs> getting irresponsible about their deadlines. Uh, so as we got further into... Um, I don't need to name any particular names, but just in the generation of the 70s and 80s pencilers, uh, things did start to get less predictable for outcomes. And sometime, sometime about X-Men 120, 125, I think I was starting to let her on overlays once in a while. Because mm. Burns' pencils were very... Um, by about... 1975, 1978, I was pretty much not working much for Marvel as a whole as much as just on X-Men books. Okay. And Roy Thomas books. And not the mainline books, not the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man kind of, you know, main Marvel cycle, Lee and Kirby books, let's call them. I wasn't getting those. I was getting kind of side projects like Craig Russell graphic novels and Jim Starlin stuff. Um... And it kind of, uh, kind of the auteur thing, perhaps. Uh, certainly, X Men is a real complicated book with that many characters, that much script. And I think they figured it just gave Chris more time to write the thing and have it edited in shape if it needed it. If I was lettering on vellum overlays, which would then uh, they'd paint out the back of the vellum, cut out the balloons, caption sound effects, and paste them down on uh, the inked artwork. Things are still pretty primitive in those days. <laughs> and it was, you know, no skin off my nose. It was the same as lettering on the boards, but not as much fun as seeing the graphite. Mm. 
I got some, uh, for a while, on like 74, 75, I was sharing a house with Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin. Oh, wow. So, so I was lettering their books. And so Gene Colan was drawing Dr. Strange at that time. I got to work on Gene's pencils. And holy smoke, I mean, Tom Palmer came very close to catching the feeling. Al Williamson came pretty close. Lee Loha came very close. But no one could catch what Gene was putting on the board with that, the edge of his pencil. <laughs> Just glorious. And Dr. Strange was all kind of misty and murky, and eternity was showing up, and there was time travel. and So period pieces, period costume, period architecture. Just wonderful stuff. Gene was such an illustrator. I got to work on that graphite. Wow. Uh, John Buscema's graphite on Tarzan and Conan. Just Jack Kirby's graphite uh, for Destroyer Doug for Eclipse. Around yeah, around that same time, maybe toward 1980. I don't remember. Wow. So let's go. Um, let's let's go back. Let's, let, let's go back to your, your kind of origin because we we kind of we we did jump in, but um, let's let's rewind a little bit. Uh, what? How did you first kind of get involved in reading comics um, and and interested in art? Um, I had cousins who were a bit older and a brother who was a bit older, like kind of four, five, six years. And so by the time I was five, I was seeing comic books on a regular basis. That would be, say, 1958. So I saw, like, the first Bizarro story in Superboy. <laughs> and I was seeing Batman, Superman, you know, World's Finest regularly. So Green Arrow, Aquaman, all these characters are in front of me. Then I saw Justice League a couple of years later. So it's just this constant dance. I didn't quite realize I saw the birth of the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. So I saw Marvel, which is to say the latest, the final Atlas books in 1959, 1960, before Fantastic Four at the end of 61. So I saw, you know, Rourke the Spider Monster and <laughs> Fin Fang Foom, all these things. I, I saw them. I've picked up Groot since then. <laughs> so I've got, like, all the Tales to Astonish issues, most of the Tales of Suspense back to number one. Oh, wow. Yeah, those monsters, man. There was just nothing like that. DC had nothing on the Marvel monsters. DC was kind of like cool jazz with the early Green Lantern and Flash, and Marvel was all rockabilly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just remarkable energy. Ditko and Kirby and Don Heck, just, you know, wow, wow, just raw nerves everywhere. And Infantino and Gil Kane looking so cool and sophisticated. <laughs> I can see and that. So I saw those, and... Um, had a couple letters published in Marvel, and then, which meant I started getting fanzines in the mail, because they, they put the names and addresses in the letter columns. Mm. And when I was 15, I was at a convention in Detroit, that was 68, and met a couple of people who I still know. It's almost 50 years. Wow. And we started doing zines together. There was a, uh, Arvell Jones was the fellow who was the chairman of the comics club. And then five years later, I was working at Marvel in the bullpen and I was lettering uh, Iron Man not long after that and then six months after I began lettering Iron Man Arbel was penciling Iron Man <laughs> wow so just yeah the blink of an eye just uh, you know half a decade and we went from being just uh, an organi a loose organization of fans doing zines to doing the books which was thrilling beyond comprehension I can imagine. I mean, you're you're a big fan of this of this thing. You're a letter writer, like you're writing in letters. That that's already at a level of excitement, and then suddenly you're working on the books. But what 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 prompted the transition to you being a letterer? 
I could spell better than the other guys in the group. <laughs> well, that, that I would got help. I a script from one of the guys who I won't name, uh, just out of courtesy, and in the course of one issue, he spelled the word strength four different times, four different ways, <laughs> and, and they were all wrong. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but I was taking journalism when I was in high school, which um, taught me, you know, sentence structure, this sort of thing, spell check. And these other guys were just kind of writing Edgar Rice Burroughs on Mars kinds of stories and, you know, big muscular superhero type stories. And I was just kind of whomping the scripts into better shape, just, you know, because who cared? Mm hmm. And then, you know, Jim Starlin was among the people in our group. He was kind of in the, he was a few years older, so he wasn't really part of the fan group as such. He was just somebody we knew. And so was Rich Buckler, uh, a fellow called Mike Vosberg, who hasn't been that prominent in comics, but uh, one of the Tales from the Crypt TV show needed new phony covers several years ago on Showtime, I guess it was. Oh, yeah. Mike did those covers. Oh, wow. Uh, let's see, we met Terry Austin along the line. There were quite a few of us in that group, in that little gang that ended up working at DC and Marvel. It's so fascinating that, you know, this collection of, you know, of fans makes that transition all kind of together, like at different points, but that they all kind of knew each other and you guys all kind of transitioned together. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was just a kind of delightful thing because I was lettering Starlin's zine work and then a year later I was lettering as Captain Marvel. <laughs> No. Uh, Rich Buckler was the first in our group to start getting scripts from Warren and then DC. So he was doing the stories for Creepy and Eerie. Hmm. And then uh, kind of House of Secrets type stories for DC for Joe Orlando. Wow. When he had Bernie Wrights and Mike Kaluta and these guys drawing the books also. And uh, so there was Rich already at Mar the Marvel office drawing pencil and covers. He'd been in the business about two years when I showed up. So he just, you know, talked to the production boss, and then I was lettering as Black Panther from the first appearance. Wow. Before she's that. And, you know, there was Starlin, so he had me lettering Captain Marvel and then Warlock, and it was kind of the old boys' network for a little while. And it was just serendipity that Arvell was assigned to Iron Man because the writer, who was a guy named Mike Friedrich, he'd been a letter hack in the late 60s, and DC hired him to start writing... Um, wrote Spectre, who wrote Green Lantern briefly, and then uh, a lot of Batman and Detective Comics stories. And when he was kind of getting worn out of DC, he came to Marvel after writing Justice League, mm -hmm. and he was writing Iron Man. And, oh, this becomes an awfully complicated story. But, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, fanboys meet fanboys, and uh, we knew each other's work in the zines, and so, yeah, it's recommendations fly around. Marvel is expanding like mad at that time, which is really the whole just the whole point of this little scenario. Mm -hmm. They were restricted to 10 books a month because of the distribution deal with uh, a branch of, um, of DC Comics at the time, mm -hmm. and which meant they had bi-monthlies, so that way you could have you know, closer to 20 titles. And somehow they were able to sneak the annuals in as separate entities. This is still late 60s. But around 1970, they got a different distribution deal with someone else. I guess the 10-year cycle had ended. And so suddenly at Conan and Werewolf by Night and just, you know, two of Dracula, just the thousand books that seemed coming out of Marvel that had been so restricted just a few months earlier. And then it had new people like crazy. And as it happened, all of us guys doing zines had done, we taught ourselves the job. Mm -hmm. So Tony Isabella is a fellow who had been doing it all. Well, he created Black Lightning, which debuts next week on the CW. 
That's right. Uh, so he's thrilled. Um, he wrote, uh, it seemed like letters, you know, like a thousand a month to DC and Marvel. I think it was being published constantly. And he and I became acquainted because he was in Ohio and I was in Michigan. Okay. And so when there was an opening for a letter at Marvel, uh, well, production guy, I should say, the lowest rung of the ladder at Marvel, 100 bucks a week, which you can't live on 100 bucks a week. No. In 1973, but that's all they were offering, and I took it. Man, get in, the, get in the office, get a foot in the door, see what develops. So I was doing just meatball production on the British reprints for several months, and then as my skills got a bit sharper, I was given the color book, and then another, that is the Tomb of Dracula, and then Starlin's books, then Buckler's book. And slowly I became well-groomed enough within the job, I knew the drill, so when after about seven months, I bugged out and couldn't stay living in New York anymore and went to California, they kept sending me books, <laughs> which I was told by a guy on staff some years later that it was incredible of me to assume they'd keep sending me work because generally they wanted to keep everything close to the office in Manhattan. Oh, there's Junior the cat. He wants to eat. Um, but I'd just call every so often and they'd send me... Because I was third tier. So it's me, you know, Werewolf by Night that sent me um, just whatever was lying around and wasn't committed to anyone that wasn't Thor or FF or Spider-Man. Okay. So, yeah, I did, like, one Hulk and one Thor annual and this kind of thing. Just, you know, scattershot all over the map. And then one day I opened the package and it was the pencils for X-Men 94, the first issue by Dave Cockrum and Len Wein. Oh, pardon me, Chris scripted that one. It was Len's plot. And I don't think I'd seen Giant Size yet. So I didn't know there was a new X-Men team. <laughs> and then here's, you know, Cyclops, Professor X, and Gene looking at us, and then there's Nightcrawler and Colossus, and what? 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 <laughs> Dave had been drawing Legion of Superheroes at DC for about two years or so at that point, and they had a parting of the ways over the return of some original artwork. And, well, how lovely, a new X-Men book. And I had to cajole the editor on that. Actually, I think it went through two editors at that time to get it every month because I wanted a monthly book. I, you know, it's got kind of tedious just getting one of this and one of that and never knowing what I was going to be dealing with week to week. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, okay, so kind of after about a year of John Byrne on the book, I think it was still bi-monthly bi at that time. But by issue 120, 122, I was, it was my regular book, which is great. And meanwhile, I was still doing Tarzan occasionally and Savage Sword of Conan and Invaders and whatever else Roy Thomas was doing. Mm -hmm. Once you get X-Men on a, on a regular basis, is that when you are able to kind of start establishing your own kind of lettering ident letterer identity? And like, Not that you hadn't already, but now you have something that's yours, that's your book that you can kind of infuse with your own style, was that kind of a, a liberating feeling? It was. It kind of grew up organically because uh, in, well, Mike Friedrich, who I mentioned as the Iron Man scripter, he was from a place called Castro Valley, which is just kind of toward San Jose, kind of east of um, the San Francisco, Oakland area, so Northern California. And he invited a number of us to come out there because he was beginning a new publishing enterprise called Star Reach, which would have been creator-owned. He ran about three years. And we should come up and we could work for him. 
And also, he arranged a place where I could stay, because I didn't know anyone in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And it's a guy that ran a bar. It was a Hells Angels bar. Oh, really? And, yeah, this guy, his name is uh, Stephen. He and Mike's mother knew each other at church. So, okay, they, their moms went to church, and these guys probably didn't. But uh, I stayed at Headley's house with about six other people. It's a real hippie kind of a situation. You know, just delightful. I barely lived with my mother and father's house, and I'm living in a hippie communal house in in, San, in Oakland. <laughs> and so I was doing flyers for the bar, which I was not old enough to drink in yet. And I don't think I would have wanted to go in that place anyway, because it was kind of rough. But yeah, doing the flyers got me kind of inculcated into the graphic design of the Bay Area at that time anyway. And the, the lettering and styles, you know, poster styles, uh, record label styles of the 20s and 30s, which the hippies were playing into in their, their posters, their music posters just a few years earlier. So I tried to bring that kind of energy into working in Marvel Comics, because I figured I'm not part of the office, I'm not part of the, the mainstream Marvel attitude. You know, I'm not a house guy. Mm. So since X-Men doesn't seem to be tied to the Marvel Universe except tangentially anyway, why not just do anything I want? And if they feel I'm getting too crazy, they'll tell me. And no one ever said anything, so I guess what I was doing was, you know, legible. <laughs> <laughs> and not detrimental to the overall, you know, attitude that, you know, this is Marvel Comics, this is the big time. So, yeah, it was, it was just... Um, I, I take it as a gift, really, that the production manager didn't tell me to kind of straighten up a little bit. Hmm. What was it? I mean, how challenge? I mean, I, I've never. I'm not a letterer. I don't. I, I've never experienced what that's like. But like, I mean, there's so much artistry in the way you letter those books. But like, how do you approach it and get that level of consistency so that that style remains so consistent over such a long period and is clear and concise, but also adding in the flourishes that really makes things pop with different characters and different you know, speech bubbles, etc. Talking in different ways. How do you kind of infuse that into the letters? You just sit down until you're satisfied, I guess. <laughs> um, it, it was just, I don't know, it was just such a kind of a magical thing because it was, you know, Bruin was this new guy who'd been doing his zines not that long before. And Chris had his kind of, he went to Bard College, so he had this theatrical attitude to his writing, much as Don McGregor did, except there was less latitude within Black Panther because they were torturing the guy almost to death every issue. And, and you know, you don't want to get too frilly with that. Mm. But X-Men, you know, the Russian guy, and uh, then with the New Mutants, you know, the girl from Skyland who was a werewolf, and there's just so many opportunities of the characterizations to get a bit nutty. And then the whole drama of Phoenix, the building tragedy of Phoenix. It was just begging for things that had the attitude of, like, theatrical posters. And then having seen the underground comics starting in 68, uh, Robert Crumb being, like, the avatar of those, and his influences were the like the, the jazz age, well, the sheet music designs, the record label designs of the 20s and 30s. I immersed myself in that stuff, which led me to the 40s and 50s. I was just, I, I, I became overeducated for the job <laughs> and then just spilled all the side of the page. You know, because I was living in Berkeley by then, so all the college bookstores are nearby and, you know, graphic arts heaven. Hmm. So everything I saw, I brought to bear. Did you? And this is a production boss, a fellow named Danny Crespi, who's who's dead by now. Very wonderful guy, very good designer. 
he never told me to look more like Marvel. So, okay, I just kept going. <laughs> and by, especially because I wasn't in the office. I was 3,000 miles from the office. So I didn't even identify with myself as really working with Marvel. It was more like, you know, just a, a San Francisco attitude of, of graphic design, I think, if I'm not flattering myself too much. <laughs> Well, that that brings up a, a few kind of questions that were submitted by listeners. Um, the first kind of being that you know, when you, if you met strangers and they, they kind of asked what you did for a living, how you know what, what did you tell them? And how did they kind of react? And was it easier to sometimes? This is in the in the words of the person asking the question. Was it sometimes easier to lie than to actually explain what you did? Oh no, I've always been a front because you know I work for Marvel Comics. That's that's always carried weight. Mm, true, especially these days since the movies are most people's. Entree to the notion of Marvel in the first place, like you know, oh, you must be wealthy. But yeah, once upon a time, because you know, talking to relatives, aunts and uncles and cousins and all, and neighbors, you know, from the old neighborhood and so on. It's, you know, I, you know, for Marvel, you know, I put the words in the characters' mouths and do the sound effects, and you know, people listen for a minute to be polite, and they don't care. <laughs> and then they, you know, talk about their grandkids, and <laughs> you know, conversation goes on. It's it's a little more attention to me in that way than if I just worked at General Motors. Mm. But in the end, it's just kind of a weird job that, you know, how interesting, but I don't care, kind of, really. Um, my mother once tried to explain to um, a cousin, kind of a, a younger cousin, almost a niece, what it was I was doing. It couldn't really articulate it, so the niece just Googled me and found like 4,500 hits or something. <laughs> okay, what he's doing is noteworthy, and that was enough. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. And it's kind of weird that it's even that noteworthy because you know it's it's such ephemeral stuff. But it does add a lot of dimension to those books. As I, I mean, you being on X Men as long as you were, again, that level of consistency throughout artistic upheaval kind of r- remains this this kind of baseline of what people think of or how the characters are acting or like how they're speaking. Like obviously it's Chris's words, but then it's your, the way that you're bringing it to the reader that is kind of, that is landing a certain way. As you said, like the characters act um, with different dialects, you adding something to the way that the letters are on the page makes a huge difference. Yeah. I think I did 90 to 95% of them for 17 years. Wow. 17 years in there somewhere. Yeah. 1975 to 1992 approximately. Um, it just became easier, I think, to keep sending it to me because Chris was very verbose. And, but then he was dealing with all these characters that he essentially created. Uh, Gene Gray and Scott Summers didn't really have that much going on uh, until he took the books over. So, um, yeah, I, I think I went through, well, Chris and I went through like seven editors-in-chief <laughs> and about 12 or so editors and it was just easier as you know as, you know say you know Anna Santi as you know Bob Harris came out of the book to just leave things alone just keep the status quo you know these guys have been doing the book but just leave things alone mm-hmm. what was your I mean did when you're working on the book like did you have a relationship with Chris in terms of like would he communicate certain things about what he wanted to see in the lettering or were you kind of given you know full kind of direction to do as you wanted uh, we didn't talk very often. He'd leave me the occasional cue in the scripts. And since I'd done it for so very long, I just, 
I guess everyone assumed that I'd get it right. And so someone called Mr. Sinister shows up. Maybe I want to do something special for him. I don't think I did. <laughs> but, you know, if aliens are showing up, you try to find some way of producing gibberish that looks vaguely like it might be speech, but doesn't have any, like, dirty words or anything hidden in there. Would you ever try to hide anything in, like that? Like, speaking oh, no. of that? no. <laughs> Too much a professional, right? Well, people don't look for that stuff. So mm. why, if you put one in, then they're going to be looking forever. Mm, true. Find another one. <laughs> <laughs> no, also that requires paying attention. And the deadlines were, you know, as I say, staggeringly tight. There was so much on every page uh, that it was easier to just kind of, just kind of, uh, just flow with it. Some aliens get, you know, jagged speech. Some get, you know, water speech. I guess try to base it on the four elements. Mm -hmm. Some are flowing. Some are rigid. Some are almost like static. It just, it just play. I hope it doesn't come back the next issue. <laughs> um, uh, Todd Klein once kind of complained with great affection that when he was doing Sandman for like what the seventy-five issues. Uh, Neil would occasionally introduce, you know, the, the various of the timeless delirium and dream and, oh, how I forget the, what the names of all of them were, death. And so he'd create a different dialogue style for them because he figured, well, we're never going to see them again. And then by about issue 30, they were all showing up in the same issue all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he was consistent. He was a gentleman. He was a scientist about it and simply kept doing the same busy stuff every single time. Wow. That's and, yeah, that's the way it has been, like, uh, I'm spawned at different things I've done now, you know, more recently with the Todd McFarlane. I never know if characters are going to appear again, you know, next issue, let alone in two years or five years. Mm -hmm. I've got to do stuff and then make notes of everything. Wow. Uh, so I can keep it consistent for later, and if I happen to get better along the way, then, well, got to still kind of take a step backward and do it the way I did it back in, you know, 1993. Well, so that's an interesting concept, the idea that, like, having to be a little bit more methodical about how you develop certain, you know, kind of styles. Um, when you were originally kind of working on the books when you were kind of younger and newer, were you being that methodical about it? Or is it, a, you know, a little bit more just kind of meeting the deadlines, getting it done, but not being as methodical on terms of keeping notes on exactly what the styles were for each particular character or, or a certain type of bubble? Yeah, it's what you say. When I came into it, because, you know, living with Engelhart and Stalin, so I was doing Avengers, doing Captain America, which, my gosh, I'm doing Avengers and Captain America and Iron Man. It's, it's amazing to think. Um, I was following in the heels of Artie Semic and Sam Rosen, you know, the, the two main lane, mainstream guys that had done it for 15 years before I got there. And they never did anything especially fancy. Occasionally, Roy Thomas might call, like Vision had a really heavy um, kind of square balloon, and he spoke in italics. That's as complicated as anything ever got. Mm -hmm. And then it was kind of wise guys like me that made it more difficult. And then if I had to miss an issue, then Janice Chang or Joe Rosen or someone else had to either follow what I had done or ignore it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> generally they give a certain amount of trouble to follow what I'd done. So I had to keep that in mind also that I'm not going to do this book forever. I might get sick. I might just get overwhelmed. I would be stuck doing an annual or something else to the side, so I don't want to leave anyone else who's going to have to come in after me this complicated bunch of jumble to uh, try to emulate. 
And then once everything went digital in, uh, say, 1995, when Comicraft was doing all the Marvel books all of a sudden, they developed a font for the thing. They developed a font for the Human Torch. It was in flames. They developed a speech uh, font for Thor. Mm-hmm. And it's, it became extremely complicated. And so occasionally if there would be a side uh, miniseries, oh, I don't know, Fantastic Four meets the Invaders, you know, whatever. And some like Chris Leopold's letter that Mike Heisler would letter it. They just ignore all the comic craft stuff because it was too much trouble to try to, to simulate it. Hmm. So it gets down to discretion. You know, I don't think the audience cares that much. It's like, you know, a little bonus thing if it's in there. Yeah. But, uh... That's an interesting point. I hadn't I thought vanity about is the kind of thing I'm trying to imply here, that, you know, if, if I want to do an awful lot of extra busyness for my own my own satisfaction, that's fine, but it's kind of personal vanity. Mm-hmm. When, when you were working on X-Men as long as you were, as you said, when, you know, there was multiple editors-in-chief and editors, and the idea of, you know, kind of, if it's don't broke, don't, don't you know, mess with it. At that time, did you have kind of a yearning to work on more different types of projects that would have kind of been away from, from X-Men or was it just so much fun to do because Chris was always changing things up and making things different and always kind of presenting new challenges? Yeah, once again, I the answer. Chris was just on fire. He was having the greatest time and, you know, working with creative people like Jim Lee, like, um, uh, like John Byrne, like all these people, New characters would show up, and so, you know, suddenly you work on Alpha Flight as well as the X-Men, or Wolverine gets his own title, or the New Mutants turn up, or you get a special edition by this new Arthur Adams kid. <laughs> and just the artists they were throwing at me, I mean, you think about, I could make a list of like a, a dozen or 15 artists I'd worked on, on just that one title, and it's like, you know, the Hall of Fame of comics, the sales are strong, and so the budget was good, and they'd give them the book to, you know, the strongest people around. They even gave Rob Liefeld a chance on an issue, and he did, you know, a pretty good-looking bunch of aliens. Um, and so it was exciting as anything. It would have been kind of a kick to work on, you know, Fantastic Four, one of the books I grew up with. I was conscious of the fact that this was like setting a trend because X-Men was not a book. Well, the X-Men I grew up with was not the X-Men I was working on. Hmm. But yeah, there was such a range of incredible stories, and then suddenly, when things were kind of moving along smoothly, Rogue would be introduced, or Gambit would be introduced. Chris told me kind of early into the bunch of it, like around issue, I think Dave was still penciling it the second time, so around issue 150, 160, that his goal was eventually to replace the entire team with new characters. And I couldn't believe what I was here, getting rid of Colossus and Nightcrawler and all these guys and just have an entirely new team. And he said, yep. <laughs> and he didn't exactly do that, but awfully close to it. Scott and Gene got married. Well, actually, Gene died. And so Scotty dropped away for a while. And then Logan would drop away sometimes. And then, you know, Angel and Bobby Drake. Or, you know, he would just always be juggling around who the characters were. So no, it was never like a static, boring thing. Uh, for variety, I started doing manga. And, uh, a friend of ours in around 87 sold his entire comic. He was a young guy. He was about 22. So he sold his entire comic collection. This wasn't that much. And went to Japan for about a year and a half, two years, to learn the language, immerse himself in the language, and meet people 
in the animation business and in the comics business because he felt Japanese comics would do well here in the States. And who could have thought that the manga style would become such a, a completely integral part of the comic, the U.S. comics vocabulary within about 15 years. So, you know, I was in San Francisco. He was in San Francisco. We talked a lot. He had me lettering uh, the early, some of the earliest U.S. translated manga books starting in 89, 90. So, you know, if X-Men were starting to seem like the same old thing, then I was looking at Dirty Pear and Appleseed and Ghost in the Shell mm. and all this other stuff that's become maybe obscure by now, but also kind of legendary by now. There was that Ghost in the Shell movie just a year or two ago. That's right. So, yeah, opportunities came out because I was prominent and I was with Marvel and I was on the West Coast. So people get some of that Marvel panache, some of that Marvel luster. Here I flatter myself again. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd give the same uh, intensity of approach, the same overworking, if you like, to the manga that I was giving to the Marvel stuff. I have a question. Um, in the, I guess, the latter 80s, um, when you had the classic X-Men, you actually got to write some of the backups. I wrote two of those. And how did and that come? Amazingly, co- I got a check from them, because <laughs> I guess they just published a heart, one of those fat, you know, omnibus. That's right, yeah. Books. It just came out recently. So it was a hardcover of reprints. Yep. They, and then the new stories in the back. Yeah, well, I guess it, I believe it just collected all the. Uh, yeah, all. I, I actually don't own it yet. I, I'm ordering it soon, but um, yeah, it has all the. I guess the first forty-four issues of Classic X-Men. So I guess your two stories are in there. But what, how did that process come about that you got to write them? Uh, I lived in New York from seventy-seven to eighty-one, something like that. I, I went back because things were just kind of dropping off. Uh, living in the West Coast, and I figured you know, I should get back to the office, shake hands once in a while, make eye contact, <laughs> for, you know, get a, a firm establishment with um, the regime once again. You know, meet Jim Shooter, meet the people that are running the place. Uh, so I rented space up at uh, Neil Adams had a actually still has a shop called Continuity Associates where he works in advertising. He's done so for a long time, and there'd be the front, you know, where he and all the people would be doing the big budget things and in the back they had four or five small rooms half a dozen rooms oh gosh about the size of a kitchenette about big enough for two drawing tables a filing cabinet and a couch no windows (laughs) and I shared a room with Marshall Rogers for about two years that was exciting wow that was interesting and so we'd listen to you know college radio and crazy jazz and stuff and he'd be doing he was already done with detective comics by then he was doing some stuff for Eclipse and for Marvel, and I was lettering X-Men, and I figured, what else in the same room? And we'd work until dawn, because you couldn't tell what time it was, there was no windows. And, um, what was your question? Well, the the question was, like, how did you... Oh, I almost lost my own question. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, how did you come to, to write those uh, classic X-Men stories? Yeah, so Chris had written the first, oh, like, couple of dozen or so, and he'd done as many as he wanted to. The idea was that the backup stories would correspond to and kind of infill some, you know, personal interest, some personal insight into the lead stories. And, yeah, there's always room between the panels. There was one one I did that wasn't published, 
Uh, they just got back from the Savage Land, and the caption says, you know, two weeks pass as nothing as they catch up on their, their meals and their sleep and so on. And I figure, my gosh, here's two weeks that aren't accounted for. Eating all sorts of stuff in two weeks. And it was a little Jean Grey story when she was starting to transit into being dark, but wasn't really quite there yet. And Scott started to realize, you know, something's a little different here. Nah, I'm just imagining it. <laughs> and time fell short. The penciling didn't get done, so the story never happened. But there was one where they, they meet Dazzler. And um, Chris had given up the backup stories. He asked me if I'd be interested, or else the editor did. And I said, yeah, I can submit something. See if you like it. And so they're in New York City, and it's, you know, nightclubs, it's downtown, below Midtown. Uh, and I figure, okay, well, Nightcrawler is a guy who grew up in Germany and Bavaria, he's been in outer space. He's never been in Manhattan. <laughs> so let's have him meet a street kid who makes him look like a fool, or just who's slicker than he is. And she's got only one leg, but she's slicker than he is. Because she's used to surviving, jumping over turnstiles in the subway. She's used to getting around easily. And he's disoriented. And that kind of thing. So I submitted another one later, and that was accepted. And I figured, oh, this I could do this gig. You know, let's dig into who Charlie Xavier was. How old is he exactly? You know, who taught him to be that kind of taciturn schoolmaster? Was he ever hip? <laughs> and just, but then um, Anna said to had given up being an editor, decided, well, she wanted to write it though. And so she had Andrew Hooks into the office. Um, she got the gig. But it's just, you know, I saw a, a little channel of availability and I figured I could do this. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I do wish I'd gotten that, but I'd never pursued it again. Mm. So um, I guess I just figured I'm an X Men guy. Identified so strong with those characters, I figured, yeah, I can, I can come up with little scenarios that aren't a big commitment of like a, a three issue story arc or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have oh a, well, a question. Yeah, so it's just you know, I saw the chance, I took it. For sure. Well, why not? Um, no, yeah, I think no. Todd Klein wrote some Green Lantern core stories in the same way because they weren't part of the continuity as such. Mm. Now, a question from a listener. So he had asked about, you know, your credits as a writer, but he also wanted to know, um, there was an issue of Iron Man, Iron Man 73, where you're credited with the story <laughs> idea. And he was curious how that came about, or, or like, what, what, how did you kind of come up with that story, and how did you end up getting credit in the issue? Uh, I saw Mike Friedrich quite often. I was working in this um, artist's studio that had been a warehouse in Oakland, and he was by pretty often because uh, I was lettering his Star Reach stories by then. And it occurred to me, because I, be, I, I did not serve in the military, though I was of draft age. There was still a draft when I was 18, mm. military draft. And it occurred to me, because it, it, uh, it's often the case that when the U.S. pulls out of an involvement anywhere in the world, they just leave a lot of the armament behind, because it's an awful lot of trouble to actually inventory everything and, and move it out. So we left lots of stuff in Iran, we've left lots of stuff in Afghanistan. The whole origin of Iron Man had to do with his stuff being left behind in Vietnam. And they played on them the first movie. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I figured, yeah, well, what if Tony finds himself in Southeast Asia on a, a rescue mission and finds himself being attacked with stuff that he recognizes all too well? Which means, of course, he'd know how to circumvent it. He'd know what its limitations are. And Mike said, sounds great. So... 
how does Tony get there? And does Happy go with him? And what's Pepper going through? Meanwhile, because if Happy's left the country, you know, how is she going to feel? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know the first thing about subplots. <laughs> yeah, of course, you can't just have a scenario and create 20 pages out or 22 pages. You need all the sub, all the, the sub-characters. You have to introduce some military personnel who are believable in Vietnam. You know, you have to, a, a chain of command. You know, why would Tony be allowed access? So that was very educational. So he went with my plot sketch, was kind enough to give me a credit, which I probably would have lettered anyway, even mm. if he had put it in the script. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that, that kind of got my my taste buds activated. Yeah, I can, I could do this, couldn't I? I could submit something every once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's not like if Marvel had anthology books. It, it, like if I had a DC, if I had a kind of a basis, I might have submitted a House of Secrets, a House of Mystery, these things that had you know completely non-continued stories, continued stories. Mm-hmm. But no, I was yeah. It's another thing that no one has mentioned. But yeah, I was. It was easy just to stay with Marvel. I never did walk across you know, like eight blocks over to DC's offices because they were that close. Because I could have submitted a portfolio there if I wanted more work and probably gotten some stuff from them also. But Marvel kept me happy. Now, um, as as this is coming from another listener, uh, as one of the first to transition to computer lettering, how was that transition? Is and is there anything you miss about the old way? I miss everything about the old way. Uh, I never really got as deeply or confidently into the computer mode as everyone has come up subsequently. There's some wonderful people who've just been winning awards lately. Taylor Rasmus, you know, I just got an award. And some other people I've had a good opportunity to meet when I've been in Baltimore and some other cons here in the eastern area. Um, I, I simply miss the feeling of the pen on paper. I miss the reference books. Um... I'm doing, I'm not part of Marvel anymore. I haven't been in quite a long time. Uh, I've got a Chris Leopolis, who's worked for them for an extremely long time, has put together a small committee called um, Virtual Calligraphy. Mm-hmm. And they handle all the Marvel books. Um, and I, I offered Chris, you know, well, maybe he'd hire me also. I'd like to work in this Nightcrawler boy for Claremont's writing, but no, this, he had there's enough trouble just juggling his people he's all they've got such a, a strict way of working that he didn't feel they could uh, easily slot me into it because it was enough trouble to keep everyone there while he had busy oh. so okay uh, meanwhile I've been working for Dark Horse and Image and you know everyone else so it's not as if there was a shortage of work I just thought it might be fun to work on Marvel again mm-hmm. when, when you're but digitally I'm not I'm not that happy I was lettering Savage Dragon for five years which ended about four years ago and that was done by hand Oh, really? It was? On uh, Eric's pencils. But finally, the FedEx charges were just getting to be too high. Oh. Uh, against his profit margins. So, okay. That was the end of that. That was fun while it lasted. I'm taking some time now to myself just to get back into the reference books I've been collecting since I was about 20. <laughs> wow. And uh, kind of just sharpening up the old skills, trying to figure out what it is I abandoned when I was 25 that I might have developed further, except I was so awfully busy lettering all these books and I don't know where I want to go with it but that's you know kind of a vanity by now I've been at it long enough that I can afford to drop away for a while mm-hmm. and just figure out you know 
Tim Robbins, who led his Hellboy, is a landscape painter. Oh, really? And makes quite a, is starting to make a living doing that. Joe Rubenstein, the, the extremely well-known inker embellisher, is a portrait painter. He started painting, I forget at what uh, school in New York when he was in his teens, when he was still in high school. Wow. Um, yeah, some people have aspirations far beyond comics, and they're able to take the time and generate the income from doing so to be um, masters of several crafts, of several fields. I have a, a listener question, which I, I think is meant in jest, but... Uh, um... <laughs> And I think it's about the idea that, you know, you've worked on some extremely wordy writers. Um, but uh, the question was, who did you hate more, Chris Claremont or Don McGregor? Oh, no. Chris has been a dear friend of mine all this time. We became friends when we were both working in the office in 73, which is two years before X-Men even debuted. Mm-hmm. I knew Don in the office at the same time. And, oh, Don had the wonderful time. Marvel at that time, which was still a really, in 73 which is still a pretty informal place. It was amazingly small. Mm. Looked as if it was a back office for D.C. <laughs> D.C. looked like an office. People wore shirts and ties and jackets, and it was haircuts, you know, brimming professionalism. <laughs> I remember with sweatshirts and long hair and extremely informal. I wouldn't quite say sloppy because we got the books out on time, but the attitude was just much more like we had been fans recently. And DC was crisp. So um, Don, uh, Rich Buckler had found a little office way in the back that no one was using. It was just kind of storage. It was a, a regular office desk in there on a drawing table or two and a file cabinet and a window uh, and some bound volumes just sitting around. And so he and myself and sometimes Klaus would go back and work after hours because Klaus worked in the bullpen too. He was, I was 20, Klaus was 20 or 21. Rich was about 24, Don was about 24, and Don would be back there, and he'd be doing the stuff that Stan Lee was, you know, renowned to have done at the time. He'd be jumping up the desks and waving T-squares, you know, acting the scripts out. And Don also would be doing dramatic reading of his scripts and just getting deeply in a theatrical way into the characterizations. And who's motivated by this, and this guy's, you know, this guy's such an asshole, you know, this, excuse me. And just having a good laugh on his characters which he continued as he was doing subsequent characters. I let him a time or two on something else, I think. Um, Don was harder for me, mostly because I was newer. Uh, so it might take me four hours a page to letter the stuff. And they were paying $5 a page. I was making a dollar and a quarter an hour. Oh, wow. So I dropped the Panther after four issues. And then everyone else, Janice Chang and Dave Hunt and Charlotte Jetter and everyone who was around at that time, would do like one or two issues in a row, and then someone else would pick it up. Because I guess nobody really felt the, oh, the commitment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I left Manhattan after seven months anyway, so I think after I did my fourth issue, I'd left town. So they didn't send them to me subsequently. But I, if they brought it up, I probably would have taken them on. Hmm. Uh, uh, if only to find out how to make the stuff, because that's the whole gist of my job at this point, now that it's digital, but it always has been, is how to make the stuff look appropriate on the page, how to fit it in gracefully. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've come to a philosophy of it over the years, which sounds kind of pompous, but there you go. Um, the, every, every single aspect of the page has equal value. The fist, the face, the cape, the background artwork, anything you see, and the dialogue and the thought balloons and the captions have equal value in the page. They have to be, put it, they have to be prioritized against one another in a way that everything has equal value and weight on the page. So it all reads in the proper order. So the characters react to each other. But you also see their facial expressions. But you don't need to have the, 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 the captions and so on at the top of the page necessarily, the top of the, the balloon, or pardon me, the top of the panel. As long as they dance through the page successfully and you read the thing accurately, then everything is fair game. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's fun, because that's what Don was really specializing in. He had uh, Buckler, and then uh, Gil Kane did an issue or two or three, and then Billy Graham, who was just marvelous, just fantastic, the passion he brought to that book. And there's waterfalls and, you know, volcanoes exploding and, you know, people being beaten up and, you know, all kinds of close-ups and distance shots and the panther leaps and off of a tree. And it was syncopated wonderfully. And Don was syncopating his captions and his storytelling within the rhythms of what Billy was giving him. And maybe it was a bit over overwrought, but... It carried an emotion to the page. You were seeing a close-up of a face. You were seeing a caption. You were seeing a fist. You were seeing a mother weeping, and then a caption, then a caption. And it was storytelling in the purest sense. And I got to give him a lot of credit for that, because his artist, yeah, Billy Graham, who's not that well-known, he died rather young, um, put everything, he can just, you know, you can smell the blood and the sweat he was putting on those pages. And as a storyteller, he was leaping around like crazy. Byrne and Cockrum and uh, Romita Jr., none of these guys were taking any great experimental steps with their artwork. They were much more conventional in the approach. Uh, Rick Leonardi was a bit crazier. It was fun to work on him. Um, I just took this as um, an immersion. It's almost like getting into a different language by moving to, to Barcelona or something and just kind of, mm-hmm. you get there, just forcing yourself to learn, trying to get everything by inference and by context. Hmm. Uh, Chris and Don both maybe you know, consider, how do you use this page? How do you get the stuff to fit and not be obtrusive? So I actually had more fun working with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> it was less profitable, you know, I deny that. <laughs> But, yeah, buck and a quarter an hour, holy smoke, you make more than that flipping burgers. <laughs> but it was my gig. It was Marvel Comics. I mean, that's that's worth a lot. For sure. I think it always will be worth a lot. Working on Superman, working on, you know, Spider-Man, that's, that's, that's a bonus just in itself, which may be kind of stupid and romantic of me. But there you go. A question from a listener was... Uh would uh, would artists ever indicate where the balloon should go, and if so, who was a real stickler for placement? Marshall was. Uh, oh, that's it. Was with McGregor. There was a, a graphic novel from Eclipse. Oh, about nineteen seventy nine, called Detectives Incorporated. I don't know if it's been reprinted since then by anybody. Kind of a slender graphic novel by today's standards. Only about forty eight or sixty pages, maybe hmm. sixty pages. And Marshall was drawing it really large, too, in the older style, like they were doing up until about 1968. And he would pencil in the dialogue and put the captions and the balloons where he wanted them. 
which also means he didn't have to draw all the backgrounds or the characters' feet, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I gave him pretty much what he asked for. Here and there, I'd move them differently just because I felt the storytelling would be better. Um, but since I was working in the same room that he was working in, I didn't want to get, uh, you know, too personal about it. Um, mostly, no, they did not. Uh, the older guard, the, the Sal Buscema, uh, you know, Gene Colan era guys, uh, Don Perlin, they'd give me lots of room at the top of the panel. Hmm. Because that was the, the rule of their generation. Gil Kane would leave room all over the place. And some artists these days especially leave room nowhere. <laughs> so you have to really hunt and look at the page with the negative space, if you know that term in mind. You know, what is the least important space? Where is there nothing happening? And it's not necessarily a background. It kind of gets back to, you know, which body parts don't we need to see? Which secondary characters do we not need to see? But no, for the most part, um, the editors would mark up, because, of course, the artists didn't have the script. This is Marvel style. And so whoever it is, you know, Sal would turn in the pencils, Engelhart would run, write the script subsequently. And so he would just simply leave, like, a third of each panel essentially vacant. Um, it, I believe, like, Kurt Swan and the different guys at DC who were getting full scripts would pencil in where things would go. Um, I've never thought to ask Todd about that. Because, of course, we all know each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Todd Klein, Mike Heisler, we've all met numerous times. Um, yeah, for the most part, I've always been given free reign. Okay. And some are a lot more challenging than others. Um, you mentioned something earlier, which uh, actually dovetails into a, a question from a listener, which was, um, are letterers allowed to proofread at all? Uh, he's mentioning in particular the 70s because it sent, uh, I'm using the listener's uh, own words. Uh, comics writers like to use long words to show that they and their comics were not dumb. Unfortunately, they often use these words wrongly. As a letterer, do you just have to reproduce the mistake faithfully, though you know it's wrong? I'll catch the odd misspelling, as you mean, all, at the occasional comma, you know, little things of that sort, but I wouldn't actually, like, take it upon myself to restructure a caption mm. if the balloon is going on and on and on. Uh, the rule of thumb is kind of you want about a dozen words in a caption or a, a speech bubble. And so if it's a really long one, I might break it up into two or three for kind of dramatic effect as well as just for making it fit. Um, but no, I was, um, when I was uh, lettering Jim Starlin's later fan work, I was rewriting the script a bit, and I started doing that on Captain Marvel. And Roy took me aside one day and said, you know, we we don't really pay you to edit the scripts. We got guys here on staff to do that. Okay, fair enough. Thanks for mentioning it. <laughs> and that was that. But yeah, it was kind of, um... Oh, kind of a, a blind spot on my part. Yeah, of course, it's not my job to edit the scripts. This is all paid professional work. It's not just zines anymore. True. This is an interesting question. It was, um, can you tell the differences between most letterers simply by looking at the work? If so, what telltale signs do you look for? Oh, yeah, of course you can tell the difference. Um, it's like spotting anchors. You know, some people are, are tighter with their feathering. Some people use heavier lines. Uh, actually, that's true with lettering, too. Some people use heavier lines. Um, so 
some people exceed the guidelines, some people stay exactly on the guidelines, some people stay within, that is, say, inside of the guidelines, and so the, there's more space between. Uh, you know, we've got your extremes like John Workman, uh, who you can always spot, because he's, he's a genius, he's just crazy. Uh, but, yeah, like Joe Rosen and Sam Rosen are very similar, but Sam was a little wackier, a little bit more play in his work. Mm. Uh, for the longest time, I'd look at the quality comics out of the 40s. It was an imprint that was gone by, like, 1955, and DC got Plastic Man and the Blackhawks and some of their characters from them, G.I. Combat. And Joe Rosen was lettering those in the earliest 40s. And I looked at those years and wondered, my God, Sam Rosen went back that far? <laughs> But it's only in the last few years I've had enough savvy to realize, no, that was Joe. There's just a quality of calm in his letter forms that Sam did not quite have. Uh, certainly the title work between Simic and Rosen is quite different. Costanza is very different. Mm. Uh, Mike Royer was very controlled. Costanza was fast. Man, was he fast. It was a real angularity in his work, uh, which is similar to what Iliopolis does. But... Um, Chris is a little more whimsical in his. Mike Heiser is a little more rigid and broader. Um, yeah, you know, I guess it's like anything. If you specialize in a thing, you know, say you're a guitarist, say you're a bass player or a drummer, mm-hmm. you'll know the nuance because you've done this yourself. I was once with uh, Todd Klein, tends to be the uncle of lettering. <laughs> it just kind of is his persona, his character, uh, just the way he is. And for a number of years in San Diego, we'd all get together and just, you know, say, let's all meet here at the bar in this place or, the, you know, the lobby of this hotel. And you get like a dozen people showing up. And we just kind of sit there and talk about, you know, name names, complain about editors, complain about writers and pencilers. And one day, I forget who was passing on an app and just say, you know, draw a letter R, draw an S. And we'd all draw R's and S's or whatever the, the, the thing was. And yeah, we all had an entirely different way of drawing R's or S's or A's, X's. You know, there's a structural component there, just the way you draw the width, the way you angle the thing. Yeah, we all had, it's the same alphabet, it's all legible. We all had a rather different way of, of canting it. Hmm. Actually, I had a question. After all those years with, uh, with Chris on all the X books, did you never want to draw another X? <laughs> <laughs> my X's were never that good uh, X is a very difficult letter you think it'd be easy but no it's not because you're coming down in two different directions uh, you know uh, coming from upper left to lower right then coming from upper right to lower left that's kind of difficult to balance in the middle mm-hmm. uh, but I would go back with Chris in a moment when he left Marvel in 92 over some uh, arguments with uh, Bob Harris he went immediately to D.C. I went to D.C. They went to Dark Horse. I went to Dark Horse. And when he started working for Marvel again in, like, year 2000, whatever that was, I was there. And if he calls me tonight, I'll be there. <laughs> I'd look forward to it. Um, you, you mentioned, obviously, that, that the get-togethers with uh, Klein and other letterers, and it kind of dovetails into the question of what other letterers do you admire? You're breaking up a little bit. Oh, sorry. What other letterers do you admire? Oh, gosh. Um, from before me, there was Howard Ferguson who lettered that, uh, Kirby in the early 40s, and they lost sight of him. I don't know if he died in the war or if he just found other work. 
Abe Candick's selected for Will Eisner on The Spirit, who's brilliant, just fantastic. He never didn't rule guidelines. He would just work straight across. Uh, ben Oda, who lettered for Simon and Kirby, and then for DC for decades in an awful lot of uh, daily comic strips. John Costanza, Mike Royer. Oh, gosh, Irish Schnapp, who was like the first keynote letterer at DC. He was there almost from the beginning in 1938. Did their covers and the key books, the Superman, Batman books. Uh, John Workman today, you know, Todd Klein, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iliopolis Heisler. I mean, there's no limit. I can't speak the same about the guys that were digitally because the fonts is fonts. Some people apply them better than others, but it's the ink that interests me. Robert Crumb, you know, mm. Dave Sim on Cerebus. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant work. Uh, fearless. I like the lack of fear. Klein has no fear. Workman has no fear. Crumb certainly had no fear. Dave Sim, my gosh. Howard Ferguson looked like he used to be a draftsman. And I studied drafting when I was in high school, junior high school. So I understand how that kind of structural thing works. Yeah, look at all this stuff. It just, it, it, it's so amazing to me. I've got so many reference books with so many things flagged out in file folders. How do they think of that? What are they thinking? My gosh. <laughs> yeah, for such a kind of a minor field of endeavor as it is to letter in comic books. It is just informal calligraphy. And calligraphers have their little quirks, their little affectations and flourishes. And you can hear their minds working. You know, since I don't ink, since I don't pencil, uh, I'm sure Rubenstein looks at a lot of things and just has a good laugh also. (laughs) But, yeah, I look at what the letterers are doing and think, yeah, yeah, that captures that moment. And since I like to look at the 30s and 40s, and bring a lot of that energy in there. I hope that some people get a good laugh at the stuff I'm doing also. Um, when uh, when I put out the call for uh, for questions uh, for you on, on a message board, called the Marvel Masterworks board, um, there was two... A lot. I'm impressed. There was two people in particular um, that wanted to say hi. That I guess were, uh, were they, they knew you from the fanzine Enough Said. <laughs> so uh, you, have yeah. a, you have a hi from Paul and also uh, from Greg. That would be Paul Rogus. And Greg Hecht. So they wanted to say hi. Okay, if that's Hecht, I haven't heard from him in years. He's not on Facebook. I don't know whatever happened to that guy. That's, that's impressive. That's nice. I appreciate it. Um, so a question that came from Greg, and I've, I've asked questions from both of them intermittently uh, as well as from others, but uh, he asked, uh, are you the one who came up with the idea of altering the Comics Code Authority stamp on the cover of Strange Tales 179? In fact, yeah, I just found out recently from Milgram that it was me. I thought he had done it first on an issue of, because, you know, this is, again, crazy days. It was 1975, 1976, and I was still living with Jim and Steve. And, yeah, there, there was Jim. I was lettering uh, Warlock on his, his artboards, and I lettered the cover on the original artboard. And I thought that, I understood that Milgram had changed the Comics Code stamp on a Doctor Strange cover, and that the office had caught it. And I figured, well, they're not going to look for it a second time. And so I changed it on the Strange Tales issue. But in fact, no, it was my idea. I somehow just fabricated this Milgram thing. <laughs> and it went into print. And I don't think the book has any additional value as a, like a little novelty thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is my footnote in history. Did, it, did anyone ever say anything to you? Code. Did anyone ever say anything to you about it? Um, no. 
Shooter was there, and uh, you know, if anything, Jim would have just pulled me aside and had a good laugh with me. But no, it was just such a minor, you know, kind of bratty thing to do. I probably got a, you know a little amount of admiration for pulling it off, but no, nah, it was just one of those one of those little moments. No regrets. Uh, a question from Paul: Was uh, any good stories about working on Spawn? Oh, working on Spawn. Uh, McFarlane is a real pistol. He's a really nonstop energetic guy. It's been almost 26 years, actually. I'm going to start issue 282 or 283 tonight. And I don't know if he's going to go after issue three. He wants to do 301 issues, so he'll have one more than Cerebus. <laughs> and I don't know if he's going to do issue 302 and then continue it. But he's, he's writing, directing, producing a Spawn movie even as we speak. And all I know about is no costumes. And maybe I shouldn't even be saying that much. Hmm. Um, but it'll be following, I guess, some of the template of the comic. And if I were him, and the movie's going to come out in about a year, which I don't know, I would assume he'd want to keep the comic going just because there's going to be a film. Hmm. But there's, you know, everything's been reprinted several times. He did um, a Spawn coloring book to kind of match the big fad from last year of coloring books. Oh, yeah. And one page, he, um, I think it was relatively early. Greg Capullo was the penciler. It's around, somewhere between issue, like, 20 and 40. And there's an enormous altercation, like cars being smashed, people screaming, all off panels. All we see is, like, a, a city, like almost like Carmine Infantino cityscape. And off panel, just yelling, screaming, crashing, breaking. And he just said, you know, cool sound effects here. So almost the entire page is covered in sound effects. Coming <laughs> off from, like, stage left. All different in every panel. And maybe, like, a body flies into the last panel of the the page, and it's quite otherwise. And that was in the coloring book, and I felt, holy smoke, why didn't they send me a copy of this? I had almost all the work on that page. Yeah. So they sent me five copies of it. But, yeah, Todd, I don't have any, like, great stories about Todd as such, because he's always been... He was in um, in uh, the Portland area. I've always been in Arizona for, God, a couple of decades. So I've only seen him in life maybe six times. Wow. And we talk once in a while just to kind of give me a pep talk because, you know, he's just going to be, you know, messing up the deadline again. <laughs> um, once, I think it was issue 200, maybe it was 150. It was going to be 48 pages, and it became 52 pages, and it became 56 pages. And the deadline is approaching and approaching and approaching. So I was awake something like 40 hours straight. I think I took one half-up nap and one 60-minute nap in that time. Otherwise, I was just grinding out, grinding out, pushing pixels, making this thing happen. And then, you keep, and then you'd add two more pages. Oh, come on, Todd, give me a break. But no, got to make it a big issue. It's a, you know, a tone of issue. <laughs> so that was that was kind of cool. Um, I don't know. He's just he's just boundless enthusiasm, boundless energy. He believes in what he's doing. He's having a great time. He's proven his point time and again. Everyone else's toys had to become better because McFarlane toys looked like a million bucks. Mm -hmm. 
And the DC Marvel toys are just cheap things with you know almost no you know bendable things anywhere. The wrists didn't move, the fingers didn't move, and McFarlane toys made them all look sick. <laughs> so everyone else had to step up their game just to keep up with him. For sure. So yeah, he's God. God knows how much money he's made, but um, he's earned it. He's proven his point many times over. That these things can be better. They don't just have to be, you know, cheap stuff made in the, the, the poorest factory. Let's put some love into these things. People are devoted to these characters. They've been around since 1940, you know. People clearly like the characters. Let's give the fans something back. So that's, in the true sense, that's a good story about Todd McFarlane. <laughs> that's good. I don't have any dirt about the guy. Well, I I don't need any dirt. I I like good stories. Those are always good too. I find it's easy to get bad stuff. It's sometimes people don't they almost don't want to talk about the good stuff because it's it's not sexy. It's not what people want to hear. The people want to hear the salacious stuff, but I want to hear the good stuff too. Well, actually, here's a good one. I was down there at this place in Arizona one time for reasons I can't remember, and he said, "Oh, let's go get some food." I figured, well, okay, we'll get some food. So I went to Taco Bell. I mean, this guy probably owns a few steakhouses. <laughs> <laughs> we went to Taco Bell. But okay, why not? Why not? It's fast. Oh, that's that's my good time with Freiland story. To kind of uh, lead us out today, I do have kind of one final question. And this also did come, I believe, from Paul, which was... Um, uh, what kind of, I mean, I, I think I know of a couple for sure, but I want to just ask, uh, did you work on any logos, and then did you do any lettering work outside of comics as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, I haven't done as many logos as some people. You know, like Todd Klein seems to have done a thousand logos. Mm-hmm. I think I've done about a dozen altogether, just because no one ever asked. And since I wasn't in New York, I was in a position to actually go, you know, to knock on everyone's door and ask if you had any new books coming up. So they usually had those done just by the guys in-house, which is fine. Um, but, you know, I did Wolverine. That's the big one. But that, that's the oldest logo that's still in uninterrupted use anywhere in comics. Wow. Because I don't think they use the Superman logo anymore. And Batman's had, you know, 500 logos over the years. And the Green Lantern had 500 logos over the years. Uh, but, yeah, the first New Mutants one... Mm-hmm. Uh, I did one for the Hercules, uh, Hercules miniseries that went no further. That was a Bob Layton thing around 1980 or so. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, some manga logos for Eclipse and Dark Horse. But most logos these days are typographical. It's, inter- uh, it's interesting that you, you, you put together, as you said, like Wolverine's one of the most recognizable and, again, un- 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 uninterrupted use of a logo that they wouldn't get you to do more. <laughs> I know, isn't that's kind of surprising. But since I was always tied only to the X-Men office, mm. it's, um, I didn't really realize I was boxing myself in because I wasn't a part of the action. I wasn't anywhere, anywhere near the office. Uh, when I had, when it was time for me to leave X-Men, because I was signing books for people who were younger than my tenure on the book. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, like sign a book for a 16-year-old, they've been doing it for 17, 18 years. Well, maybe it's time for another career move. Maybe I've been <laughs> in one place long enough. Mm-hmm. And then the manga thing happened to come up, the McFarlane happened to come up. Um, it's, I don't know, it just seems like in this in this time, in graphic design altogether, in you know, 2017, 2018, 
it seems like typographical is just the way everything has gone. That book covers these days tend to be clip art that's been modified and photoshopped to look like a unified piece. Uh, in 2016, I think it was the chalkboards became a really popular thing in diners and bars. And now you can go to the usual font sites and find clip art, pardon me, um, chalkboard looking fonts by the dozen. That's like the fad for this moment is things look like they were drawn with chalk. Very <laughs> informal. It's, it's odd how retro things become the norm and then nothing moves forward. Hmm. And, you know, chalkboard is just kind of your sloppy 40s, 1940s, 1950s kind of affectation. And now you don't even have to learn how to do it by hand anymore. It was pointed out to me once that it was like the 1950s was the last decade where there was any original graphic design happening, and then everything started to become nostalgic back to the 20s and 30s. And the hippie thing was kind of nostalgic to the 1880s to the 1920s. And there has been like a real solidified new graphical design sense anymore in anything, in architecture and in, in lettering and typography. People just keep looking back. And I, I'm guilty of that myself. Uh, but yeah, not that many logos. Only about a dozen. Todd Klein has been doing, there's that name again. He's been doing a, a logo a day for several years. So he's got several galleries of 100 logos apiece, probably at, um, at his website or at his, um, his blog. And a few of them might have shown up in there. And I was amazed that some people who aren't myself have a better collection of them than I do. <laughs> <laughs> as far as stats of the original work. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I never kept close enough track of stuff. As far as outside of comics, I've done some book covers. I did one album jacket when I was in Toronto. Because yeah, comics were kind of drying up for me toward 1985 or so. And I figured, well, what else can I do? And I had friends in Toronto that were working for Columbia Records. Just as disco was kind of fading and as punk was kind of starting to get a little tired. So I went up there and did a one album jacket and some in-house stuff for Columbia up there. Oh, wow. And then the art director was fired. Hmm. So that was the end of that. It's funny, I'm, I'm actually uh, recording from Toronto right now. Oh, I really liked it up there. Uh, we were, oh gosh, an area called, it was then called Cabbage Town. Oh yeah? So it was near Bloor Street. Um, there was a library near there. I can't quite remember. Young Street was near there. Okay, yeah, I know it very well. And the Silver Snail Comics was around that region at that time. Yeah, it was a little south of that, but yeah, it's still it's still around. It's moved locations for the first time in like I don't know, like years. But it moved. I want to say like seven years ago, um, or something like that. But it had been down on Queen Street for forever. Yeah, Ron Van Leeuwen was the owner. Maybe he still is. That I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm thinking back, you know, decades. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of fun, but yeah, so, you know, Flyers for Bars, I've done a lot of those. Oh, wow. Um, but, like, I didn't actually do anything for, like, like CDs, or um, I didn't follow up on it in any length of time. I've done any, like, posters for the, in that kind of way. Would have been fun. But the comics were, became too regular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, a lot of people did branch out, but I was, I was busy and happy with the X-Men, and then the manga, and then the Spawn. Mm-hmm. With, um, with, I mean, to go back to the Wolverine logo, I mean, how did you kind of come up with that design? I mean, again, it's everywhere. That I mean, 
like how did you come up with that design? How many designs did you go through before you kind of settled on that? Um, how did you even get the the the, um, the the job to actually design it? Um, I guess Chris mentioned it that they were going to be doing the he and Miller were going to be doing the series, and I figured I wanted a piece of that. Uh, do you recall I kind of what year that was? Oh God. Uh... <laughs> I want to say like 84 I was living in San Francisco then so it must have been in the early 80s mm-hmm. 82, 84 in there somewhere and I guess I just had a good relationship with um, uh, maybe Louise yeah Louise Simonson was the editor then Louise Jones so yeah she gave me a call and I said yeah I'll, I'll want you up some things and so I roughed out my, my thing with the designing logos has always been put down your first impression and then do the exact opposite <laughs> and then try to meet in the middle. And so I did some extremely unlikely things. I still have all my sketchbooks, you know, I can I can pull this thing up. Um, and, you know, Engelhardt said, oh yeah, of course, do something with the three claws. I figured, well, but that's what they'd expect. And so instead I did something closer to what might have been done in like the early 40s, like a film poster except not as brash as the film poster would have been because you have more latitude. I had to be kind of in a straight line with only, you know, only a certain uh, height and width available to me. Mm-hmm. But once I had the, you know, the pointy bits, let's put serifs on there. No one uses serifs and logos. <laughs> and a little more like a book jacket, a little more like something you'd see with a little more, uh, a little more snap than the free-form things that comics tend to be. As I said, serifs making the difference, pointy bits making the difference. And I was a little bit cheesed off when I saw the logo for the Black Panther movie. But uh, John Marshall from Comicraft told me, oh yeah, well the editor told me to make it look like the Wolverine logo. <laughs> and so he did. And so a lot of those letters are just grabbed directly off of my logo. But okay, that's what the editor asked for. Wow. Speaking there of... it is on the poster. Speaking of logos, like what... Um what what is what what are some of your favorite logos that kind of exist in comics that or maybe not even in comics but what are some of the logos that you really appreciate or like looking at that you can kind of again respect that artistry that kind of went into the design. Well, the thing that really turned me around was Zap Comics in '68 or '67, whenever that was, because we're getting this institutional kind of look from uh, Argus Simic and Sam Rosen on the Marvel covers. You had the the much older logos at DC from Superman and Batman and Lantern and so on. And they were kind of institutional looking, kind of clever. But Robert Crumb was just a, oh, he was so crazy. There was nothing else like him. I figured, who is this guy? What is he thinking? (laughs) And I didn't quite know what the 20s looked like. Uh, When I was uh, 20 myself, I was lent a a sign painting book from 1917, so it's 100 years old now. And the styles in there really informed me enormously. Um, And I've tried to carry through with that sort of thing ever since. As far as cover logos themselves, it's like you can't beat Superman. You can't beat Fantastic Four. Uh, The original Fantastic Four from 1961. Which I bought, by the way, for, for 10 cents. (laughs) <laughs> um, golly uh, as I say these days instead of going to the comic shops that often uh, the sticker shock is too much I can't spend $4 for a comic book that's not when I used to buy them for 12 and 15 cents um, 
basically, yeah, I think between Superman and Fantastic Four, you have an encapsulation of what those companies are, how they look at themselves. It was John Byrne that said that the first time I saw the Fantastic Four, it looked like a, a circus poster. Hmm. Just these crazy dancing letters. And Superman is just doing yeah, zoom. It's coming in from another planet. They captured the, the gestalt of that perfectly in the first Chris Reeve movie with the, the titles just flying at us from outer space. Um, I haven't read comics to speak of since around 1990, 1985. So I don't even know what the current logo would look like. <laughs> I drop in for a free comic book day. And that's actually about it between me and comic shops, which I kind of hesitate to say, but there it is. Um, yeah, I'm, the comics have come so far from where I came in with them, which was, you know, Fantastic Four 1, Spider-Man 1, yeah. Superman about number 135. Yeah, Green Lantern 2, Flash 108. That's where I came in. Showcase 2. So I really don't feel an affinity for the books anymore, I'm afraid to say. I I don't recognize them. That's natural with time, too. Yeah, I'm sure it is. It's been a long, long time I've been reading them. About almost 60 years. So yeah, the stuff I buy these days are the showcase volumes, the Marvel Essentials volumes. So I recognize those things. Mm-hmm. Well, it's 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 yeah, it, it kind of it has that uh, that this. I hesitate to say nostalgic connection, but there is that you know, as you said, it's it's something you recognize, it's familiar, it's it's what you, you what you knew. Well, I get information too that I didn't recognize when I was ten years old. Hmm. Because, you know, this was, Kirby was 40, Ditko was nearly 40, Stan was 40, Don Heck was about 35. And I can see, the, you know, the Cuberts, Gil Kane, the extraordinary ability these guys had working at these really large artboards, doing these rather simplistic stories, putting so much verve into them. The Gil Kane science fiction, Kubert's Tarzan a few years later. This is so powerful, such powerful stuff. And... I knew these artists, I mean, not personally, but I knew they worked so well, and there were so few. I could name all the DC artists, you know, on the fingers of both hands. The same with the Marvel guys, even fewer. And so I knew they worked intimately. And so look at it now with adult eyes. I can really see a lot more nuance. I can see when Kirby was taking a shortcut or when he was having a good laugh. You know, Ditko's fingers, Ditko's amazing anatomical knowledge, the way he would draw hands and faces, uh, the background characters, all those hats. Every, all of Ditko's characters wore hats. <laughs> Even as humans weren't anymore. So, yeah, just as little time capsules done by extremely intelligent and gifted people. That's And they were drawing so large. There was, you know, so much room to work with. Today's comics artists are working much smaller. So there's less background detail. No one has, I don't think anyone has secret identities anymore. Doesn't feel like it. And, yeah, the clothing, the drapery, there was just so much that they knew then, so much they were bringing to the page, it wasn't just musculature. They'd take more pleasure in seeing how they dealt with light, because they showcase the essentials, they're in black and white. And I don't know if today's books would hold up as well in black and white. Hmm. I, I Honestly, I don't think they would in a lot of cases. I think sometimes they lean a lot more on the colors to kind of fill in the empty space. Well, I mean, conversely, they know the colors will. 
Yeah. And that's kind of part of the the contract, the relationship between comics creators these days is that expectations are different. Hmm. And I, yeah, I do wish I felt some affinity. Actually, I'm seeing recommendations for new books all the time. But I'm too busy. It's, it's that sad thing that when the hobby becomes the profession and then the hobby kind of drifts away. <laughs> yeah. I can believe it. It does happen. But, you know, I've got... I'm doing, you know... I, I tend these days to be working on graphic novels and um, not quite educational books. There's a fellow named Jonathan Hennessy that's doing an informal series called The, the Comic History Of... And two years ago, I did the comic history of beer, which goes back 6,000 years into the different styles of beer. And it's drawn by Aaron McConnell, who you've never heard of, but he works with um, Steve Lieber and Paul Guinan up in Portland at, um, at Heliotrope Studio. I think it's called Heliotrope. It used to be called Periscope Studio. Anyway, um, wonderful work. There was a, a comic history of, um, comic book story of video games. There was poems for comic book history of cats. <laughs> and just, you know, a deep research, deep reference, uh, historical figures named. I've done an illustrated history of the um, Declaration of Independence. And there's a lot of fascination to be had in these things because it's, you know, all that deep research. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a series now called Nomad, N-O hyphen, pardon me, N-O apostrophe, M-A-D-D, which is um, a heavy, almost mythical, mythological-based thing of humans, except it's not us, it's not Earth. And aliens are involved in quests and father-son relationships and broken hearts, broken promises. People dying, consequences of people dying. Um, it's, it's got heart. It's, it's great because you just really don't know what's going to happen next. There is no franchise relationship here with a Superman with a Lois Lane who are always going to be alive. Mm-hmm. People do age. And aliens. It's, it's got everything I like. <laughs> <laughs> Architecture. Um, other than that, yeah, reference books. I wanted to design fonts based on the 20s and 30s for the longest time. And so my, my, so my time now is spent just simply with my, my sketchbooks open again, my old reference, the sheet music, the movie posters. Yeah, what were these people thinking that they didn't have to think about? It was just so natural for them. Mm-hmm. People from my grandfather's time, things he would have seen ordinarily. I'd kind of like to get in the head of those days. There was there's an exhibit right here. I, I live just outside of Cleveland, and um, the museum downtown has a, a show right now in the jazz age, the twenties. And, oh my gosh, the stylization of the 1920s. The music was so wild. You know, new technologies all the time. Prohibition, you mm-hmm. couldn't drink. Yeah. But people got to run that somehow. <laughs> but, yeah, that's that verve, that energy. My gosh, I, if I could have been in my prime in those days, even with the influenza epidemics, I uh, would have been pretty good. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking a lot of time out of your day to, to chat with us today about, I mean, your career in comics, your your influences, I mean, everything. It's been really interesting to kind of hear from your perspective. I mean, because I, I don't know if I've had, had a chance to actually have a letterer on the show before. Uh, I've talked to colorists and inkers and pencilers and writers, but I've always been more interested about, you know, how the lettering kind of went in and, and the kind of the hidden artistry of it. It's been a very rewarding and 
fun career, and I've got to work with just you know fantastic people, just utterly fantastic people. And I've always been more of a fan of it than you might expect. So yeah, just it is a thrill. It's always been a thrill. Interesting stuff comes in, and I feel so flattered and honored that I can be a part of this kind of a packaging. And yeah, I'm flattered that you had so many people with questions for me because this is kind of an obscure occupation. <laughs> maybe but not as are. maybe not as obscure as you thought, right? <laughs> maybe not. Okay, well, thanks for giving me the call. Absolutely, thank you so much, and I will let you know when the show goes up. I appreciate that. I look forward to hearing it. Well, maybe I do. Maybe not. <laughs> I do tend to mumble. <laughs> not at all. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye bye.